Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined this day, just as other days, by my good <laughs> friend, my business partner, my mate, Mr. White Hair and Black Glasses, long stemmed uh, drinking glasses as well, Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you? Gosh, I thought you were heading towards long-stemmed rosies there. I, I thought this was getting a, a dashed romantic. Not that I'm complaining, but that's the way it started to turn. And then you, as you tend to do, you pulled it right back in again. Mm-hmm. I'm very well, thank you for asking. That's good to hear. I, I am, I am growing into the space that you and I have created today. Unlike most days. Okay. We are recording this on a Saturday afternoon, and I'm feeling a little bit like a gentleman podcaster hmm. because I've I've got some whiskey poured in my glass. Okay. My my boys are downstairs playing Minecraft. My wife is in the bedroom reading, probably going to take a short nap. Like this isn't a work day. I don't have to get to shipping spreadsheets. I don't have to take care of any emails today. We don't have to reach out to anybody about samples or casks nope. or bottling. This is this is a Saturday afternoon recording session. I'm just kind of blown away by that. And I'm as I started to say there, I'm just growing into that space. So Slange. Did you have a uh, did you have a Shabbos Goy press press record on your garage mm. band like I did? I did. I took my left hand mm-hmm. and I grabbed my right wrist right. and I led it towards the record button. So today I've played the role of my own Shabbos Goy. It's kind of like the stranger for Shabbos <laughs> Goy needs. It felt like somebody else hitting record on GarageBand. I'm not going to lie to you. It was remarkable. So, so you're yes. I see something in your glass, also, gentleman podcaster. Yes, and you know, I'm I'm sitting here, and I was watching my wife set up a tent in in our backyard because <laughs> now there's today's euphemism. Hey now, <laughs> she pitched a tent. Um, no, my 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 youngest daughter Mimi is having a sleepover, so she's going to have two friends over. And oh, lovely! All of them are sleeping in their respective tents in our backyard. Oh, magnificent! Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm so they can come together and have their little chats and do whatever eleven-year-old girls do at a slumber party, and then they can retreat to their own tents. I just don't know how they're going to be able to do light as a feather, stiff as a board rituals. Uh, in a social distanced kind of way. Did you have that in Scotland? Light as a we didn't. We, didn't. we didn't, but that's that's a good point you raised. But you are the dad, so you will be solving that issue later. All right, you just gave me some work. So <laughs> doesn't it feel doesn't it feel strange recording on a Saturday afternoon? It does feel strange. <laughs> I'm sitting here drinking whiskey, recording with you, and mm-hmm. my wife is setting up tents. And now, granted, <laughs> we live in a modern society. Yeah. And we we do it, but everybody knows it's the dad's responsibility to pitch a tent of a Saturday afternoon, or or just in the mornings, you know. <laughs> hey, different dads do it different ways, you know. Whatever it fits with your family, that's the <laughs> that's the name of the game. So I've got something that I think is is somewhat interesting in my glass. Okay. And I, I, we're not going to play the guessing game. We're going to just get through the introduction, get to the okay. interview, and get on with business. Yeah, good, but, good, good. Yeah. 
This this is this is something that I purchased uh, not too long ago actually. Where are we? I purchased this two weeks ago, and it is the general release of the Ardbeg Day Black. And for oh. those doing any internet searches for it, you will know that it is three A's. It is black. And if you don't do the three A's for a period anyway, you are not getting any results on it. But here's the thing. Yeah. When I got this home and I, and I opened it the very day I, I purchased it and I opened it and I poured it and, and you'd asked me what, what did I think of it and some other people on Instagram had asked me what I thought of it. It immediately was an art bag. And, and it's funny, you and I were just talking to somebody the other day. We don't spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about other brands and we certainly don't do any press releases or anything like that. But there are moments when you and I are whiskey geeks and we get involved with sure. new releases. And, and so that, that's where I'm coming from here. Please, I hope no listeners thinking, you know, this is a, an advertisement for Ardbeg by any stretch of the imagination. So so when I first got it opened and I poured it, it mm. was definitely Ardbeg. It was it was present. Okay. As all those all those Ardbeg qualities that I would expect, you know, that little bit of Chipotle kind of pepper, a little bit of um, white chocolate fattiness, um, de- definitely present, definitely recognizable as as younger Ardbeg. Mm-hmm. On that first day of opening, what wasn't recognizable was the Pinot Noir cask maturation, and that's what I'd said to you. Yeah, when you and I were discussing this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. I and I'd said at that point, I'm really curious now that it's been opened, now that a dram's been poured out of it, and now that it's back on my shelf. I wonder what this will look like in a couple of weeks. Mm. And that's really partly why, as gentlemen podcasters, <laughs> I, I really wanted to pour this dram for <laughs> for today's recording. Okay. And as soon as I poured it and stuck my nose in it, I got all of this Pinot Noir juiciness and sweetness that was not present two wow, weeks ago. So it just needed yeah. a bit of oxygen. Exactly. So, exactly, and that's and that's something you and I go back and forth on with with some of our nation releases as well. Sometimes a nation member says, "Oh, this wasn't doing what I was expecting it right, initially." Right. Well, it's been in a locked up bottle. It's had a tight cork on there. It's transported to you. It's lived a life. Let it let it get its bearings. Let it get comfortable mm-hmm. on your shelf. Go back to it immediately. Go back two weeks. Give it a couple of months, three months. Although some of our recent releases, not looking at Ben Homan in particular, but our recent releases haven't been living on people's shelves very long. Christopher Sebastian, look, not looking at you either. but Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't look at them specifically and call them out. Not specifically. For drinking nope, so fast. Don't, definitely, I'm definitely not looking at them, definitely not calling them out, and definitely not observing that they are absolutely killing a couple of our recent releases. <laughs> The the Ardbeg Black that you have in your glass is that the committee bottling? Is that the the full cast mm. strength, or is this the the forty six percent one? So this is the general release. This is forty six percent. If okay. if you look at the committee release, it's actually only fifty point seven percent. So my guess is not cast strength, but probably at an ABV that they thought was just good drinking whiskey. I, I could appreciate that. It's why I made the decision of of actually letting the committee go by. But partly, in some instances, I'm kind of past the 
chasing of some releases. Mm-hmm. I'm okay letting some things go by. I also think for you know some of the more recent committee releases, and, and you and I have discussed this plenty, that they haven't really done what I'd like them to do. Um, I do remember Dark Cove coming out though, oh. and thinking, oh, oh, yeah. that's that's very decent. I haven't I haven't even returned to Dark Cove in a couple of years. It is worth your um, time. It's worth returning to. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. I opened it the day I got it, took a dram, maybe opened it another couple of weeks later, took a dram. I haven't really touched it since. So mm. maybe maybe for the emails segment, uh, as a gentleman podcaster, I might I might mm, pour some okay. dark coal okay. for the email section. Anywho, what are you drinking, young sir? The whiskey that I selected, I selected for a very different reason than you did. As you might recall, two days ago, now, that will have been the Thursdays, as, as we've mentioned previously on this podcast, as in just a few minutes ago. We're recording on a Saturday. But two days ago, I had a really, really awful day. I was perhaps the crankiest I have been in years. I wanted to put fists through walls and throw things. Like, it was, it was you know, it's just like tiny things that build up and turn into bigger things. It was not like one thing that, that set me off. It was just many, many things. Is that the day you didn't text me at all? That's the day I didn't text. I <laughs> don't feel bad. I didn't text anyone. <laughs> but I've gotten over that. And then I had a good Friday, an even better Shabbat. So Friday evening. And then today it's just been glorious. I just got done with a tasting with Ali Chilton and Chanel LaCorey with um, mm. the Norfolk Whiskey Group in Massachusetts. So that's Bikram's, you know, whiskey group. And and it was just... Just, just yeah, to go ahead. interject for just a just a touch of a second. Go ahead. Ollie, we've interviewed Ollie twice for the podcast now. Am I right in saying that? We interviewed him once in the car. We interviewed him once. Just the once. Just the once. Oh, okay. He okay. he may have contributed in a small way to another episode, but maybe a jubilee. Yeah, a jubilee I, I think so. But he we only gave him his 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 one dedicated episode thus okay. far. We, we need to we need to get Chanel interviewed as well then, as as you and mm-hmm. I are prone to doing our our production meetings on air. This is another one. We need to get Chanel interviewed mm-hmm. yep. for the podcast. Yep. Oh, she's fantastic anyway awesome yes so it was a good tasting so it was a great tasting so i'm having a great day and this this may sound weird but what i find myself doing when i've had a really bad day and have gotten over it the first whiskey that i go to is the best worst whiskey i've ever had (laughs) and i i nose it and i drink it to uh-huh. remind me that even in bad times, things are okay. Like, you know, this too shall pass. And so what I poured was the Brooklotti uh, 10-year-old mm-hmm. coming-of-age Valanche mm-hmm. bottling, which uh, has become quite possibly the most famous Jumalt.com <laughs> whiskey, note, whiskey review I've ever done. Yep, the old dead muskrat. The old note. dead muskrat. And so I returned to this to remind myself of that bad day on a good day. Because it's it's a way to let me know that things do pass. 
you know, it, it's so easy to get caught up in negativity, and it could be a, it could be like a snowball turning into snowmen body parts. You know what I mean? Or you could just leave it as a snowball and move on. And this whiskey reminds me that you can move on from negativity. And so I'm drinking it for that reason. But let me tell you something. One of the world's most negative whiskeys. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you something about this, though. I found a note on this whiskey this morning that I'd never found before, and it is fantastic. On the finish, it is pure birch beer, New England-style clear birch beer, which I absolutely love. And it comes out of the blue, (laughs) making it an even worse whiskey. But it's showing me that good note. (laughs) (laughs) So with both of of our whiskeys described and discussed, today we're going... Slightly off-piste. Oh, yes. We're going we're gonna to have an interview today that is very much in the style of our Matthew Rhys, Garth Ennis, and Adel Rafai yeah. interviews. So here's, here's a very quick thing for you. For years now, I've always said to you, is it Garth Ennis or Garth Ennis? And, uh, and, and every time I've remembered it incorrectly. And, and I, the reason <laughs> I got it correct now... Uh-huh. is because I have a new way of remembering it that is now fail-safe. And okay. um, by fail-safe, I mean foolproof. In Ireland, there is a town called Enniskillen. E-N-N-I-S-K-I-L-L-E-N. Enniskillen. Yeah, okay. And now all I have to remember is that Irish Garth has Ennis the same as Enniskillen. That's all I have to remember. And I will never... Get his name wrong again. So I am overjoyed that I have figured out that system. But the point that we're making here is we're going a little off piste. Today we have a particle physicist on the show, and you, Joshua, mm-hmm. are the reason for us having Daniel Whiteson join us. So let's spend a second explaining how this came about. Right. So, as you know, there was a time, I don't, well, maybe you don't know this, there, there was a time in our world where there wasn't this, this virus called COVID-19. I'm not sure if you've, you know that, but, uh, you know, yeah, we're... Breaking news. <laughs> where, where some of us, you know, you'd, you'd find us <laughs> traveling driving in cars from state to state, maybe maybe driving to the airport and even going onto an, something called an airplane. It's true. The good Leo Vatesman was just telling us the other day he is seven episodes of One Nation Under Whiskey behind because he has not had anywhere to drive to. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you have. So you were you clearly in a world living in a, in a world. world. And so, you know, I started collecting podcasts, right? I, I wanted I wanted to have in my rotation just a good series of podcasts to listen to from from politics and news to to science to music to just celebrity interviews, etc. And one of the things that I love about science is that you have these prominent scientists who've come out over the decades, who were able to deliver wonderful scientific knowledge 
in such a way that is easily digestible even for a non-scientist like myself. And so I would I would say Carl Sagan was probably the grandfather of of doing this at least in modern memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson of course, you know, is is another one who who's who's done this with great success and and brought back Cosmos, right? Carl Sagan's old show. And then Searching for Science podcasts, I found this one called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. Which and, is a terrific title. Right? And I said, oh, geez, that's fun. And, and you know, the, the podcast icon, the, the picture is just on this graph paper of just hand-drawn comets and stars and, you know, planets and things like that. And I started which listening. Which I believe is Jorge's work. Which I think is Jorge's work, right? Jorge is a... Uh, he is a cartoonist who, who has a series called PhD Comics. But they get together, and for anywhere between, say, 45 minutes to an hour, they take a subject, which could be as simple as, why is the sky blue, and fully explain it so you have the best understanding of it. And, valuable question. Right? And, and so I, I've been absolutely addicted to this podcast. Even Haida's been loving it. And so because we're always looking to to get off course a little bit, right? To yeah, stretch our legs. Right? Stretch our legs. I said, you and know, it's the summer right. and we're recording on a Saturday. Come on, man. <laughs> Chill out. So, so just on a whim, I said, you know what? Let, let me reach out to them. They, they had, you know, contact on their website. Hey, we'd really love to get you guys on here. And so Daniel, I think, responded within five minutes. He, he must be like me. He's probably on email constantly. And uh, he said, you know what? I know I can definitely do it. Uh, Jorge's schedule is a bit more challenging than mine. Now, just to give you an idea, that statement in and of itself. So Daniel Whiteson, Dr. Daniel Whiteson, he's a professor of physics and astronomy at, at UC Irvine. But he's also a scientist at CERN Labs, right? So this is a person that's hopping between California and Switzerland, and he's telling me, oh, <laughs> Jorge's schedule's uh, a bit more challenging than mine. So, oh, okay, all right, you know, fair enough. And, uh, but, it, yeah. but it's also interesting because just as you're saying back in a time when we used to travel, we were actually scheduled to meet Daniel in person on the West Coast in Irvine. And that was another one of our trips that was cancelled. Yeah. And then we all jumped on Zoom, as is de rigueur these days, mm-hmm. and, and interviewed him there, which is actually where our most fantastic masthead photograph came from. <laughs> uh, that's, that's how we talked to Daniel for, what did we talk for, an hour, an hour and a half? About an hour and a half, the, yeah. The raw audio. But yeah, and that was the image of Daniel that we had the whole time we were talking to him. But as we've said with, with Garth Ennis, as we've said with Adol Rafai, as we said with Matthew Rees, even if you're not into particle physics, even if you're not into science, even if you're not into you know bigger questions writ large, Daniel is so approachable and so accessible and mm. so incredibly well-spoken that we still think there's going to be something here for for everybody to enjoy. We wouldn't have published it otherwise. 
but he was yeah. he was such so much fun to to just chat with. Just I will also go on yeah. to say, all right. if if you are intrigued or interested in all of this stuff, I do highly recommend his TED talk. He is a little harsher uh, <laughs> on the subject of philosophy in his TED talk than he is in this interview, and I was ready to roll up my sleeves and get into a good old-fashioned philosophy uh, slash natural philosophy throwdown with the wonderful Daniel Whiteson, and it never did come to that. No, no, it never came to fisticuffs, digital or otherwise. Nope, it was all (laughs) a a good-natured back and forth for the duration of the interview. Yeah, so there is a bit more to say about Daniel and Jorge, uh, but I, I wanted to save that until the end. So be, because they, they, they've got a bit more going on, too, and I, I want to talk about that. I really wanted to hop into this conversation and just hand it over to him. Before I do, just so everybody's aware, again, to your point, Jason, that yes, we're going off track, but yes, we believe this is going to be fun for, for everybody to listen in. Keep in mind that the idea behind this conversation was that we're having a conversation about science in the universe and and how it applies to our daily lives or doesn't apply to our daily lives over three different single cask nation whiskeys. So we sent Daniel a bottle of our Crofting Gaya 10-year-old, and I had in my house open bottles of our Ardmore eight-year-old. That's the one that was matured in a Laphroaig cask. And then our five-year-old Amrut. And when I asked, so I asked, <laughs> I asked Daniel, I said, you know, what, what kind of whiskeys do you like? And he said, I really like smoky whiskeys. Like, send me stuff mm-hmm. with smoke. And so that was the Croftingea. That was the Ardmore. But I wanted mm-hmm. to throw him a bit of a curveball unpeated single malt, but not Scottish single malt, but Indian single malt. And and so we do talk about those three whiskeys over the course of the conversation. Exactly correct. And Daniel did not know about the existence of Indian single malt. And so as he was educating us on the, on the universe, we still got to give him a little bit of information. It's so amazing. Share a little bit of knowledge on some Indian single malt. It's so rare when you can teach the teacher (laughs) (laughs) and here he is Uh. first off thank you again for agreeing to to meet with us my my first question which actually this is question zero because this this i just thought of this now (laughs) Here's how the sausage is. (laughs) I love that we're starting with question zero. That's very scientific, right? Science usually starts from zero, not from one. So I'm already loving the tone of your approach. Let's do it. I can't believe you would actually indulge him in this, Daniel. I'm ready for question minus one. What's question minus one? That's That's my question. It's the meta question about questions. I'm just trying to pander to you. That, that's all that's happening all right, here. Well, it's working. Um, it's working. <laughs> so the question that I had is, if you've been on other podcasts, have mm-hmm. there been other non-science podcasts you've been on where they've asked you to you know, discuss science? Well, that's a great question. I was on a podcast about making podcasts. Like, um, you know, how do you put your podcast together? How does it work? Okay. Um, and so didn't get a lot of science questions there, more process questions. 
Um, and then I've been a guest on um, certainly a bunch of science podcasts and then some more general interest podcasts where the audience is a broader set. People are not necessarily going to tune into a science podcast, uh, but are open to hearing uh, you know, somebody chatter on about the nature of space and time once in a while. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I, I love it. I love all audiences because I think that, uh, you know, curiosity and wondering about the universe, it belongs to everybody and it's in everybody. Even if, you know, it's not necessarily your number one podcast choice, I think that everybody wonders about the universe. That's actually a perfect segue now into question number one. All right. What I wanted to do for my guests first, or what, what I'm hoping you'll do for my guests, is firstly, Explain a little bit about yourself, mm-hmm. who you are, what you do. Mm-hmm. If you could touch on the podcast as well, and, and that's how I was introduced to you. Mm-hmm. It wasn't through your book, okay. which I now have. My wife got that book for me oh, nice. uh, on Audible before all of the driving ended. I would have been long <laughs> done with this book. <laughs> uh, you know, so, there, so there's that issue. But after that, and this is where it gets back to your answer on question number zero is what was your spark? What was it about science in the universe and particles and all this that set you on your path to make this your, this is now your life's work. So if you could summarize all of that. <laughs> if you'd answer that in three sentences, that'd be a fantastic start to the podcast. Um yeah, well, uh, for, so for your <laughs> listeners, uh, my name is Daniel Whiteson, and I'm a particle physicist. Uh, I'm a professor at UC Irvine, and there my day job is sort of twofold. I teach physics. So right now I'm teaching physics and programming, how to use Python to model numerical systems. But mostly I'm a researcher, which means I try to answer questions about the universe. And the research tool that I use is the Large Hadron Collider which is an enormous device outside of Geneva in Switzerland where we smash protons together at nearly the speed of light. And the goal there is to create really high energy density collisions so that we can create new kinds of stuff. Like we take normal stuff, protons, and we try to turn it into new kinds of stuff. Not just like rearrange the protons in different scenarios, that's chemistry. I'm talking about alchemy, like we are turning this kind of matter into a new kind of matter. And, wow. and the protons annihilate, and sometimes you get out crazy weird new stuff. And my goal has always been to understand the universe at its smallest scale. You know, to figure out, like, what is the, the source code of the universe? Or what is the, the basic rules out of which everything else is built? Because it seems yeah. to me like this sort of like a tower of understanding. You know, you can think about the universe in terms of, like, fluids and air and people. That makes sense. You can dig down deeper and understand in terms of chemicals. You can dig down deeper and understand in terms of atoms. But I was just, I wanted to go to the deepest level because it feels like each level controls the next one. And if you get down to the bottom, then you get the real true answer. I want to be at the center of the onion. You know, that's where the the real truth lies. And so to me, Mm -hmm. particle physics was the road there. But uh, it wasn't a straight path for me to particle physics. I tried a bunch of other kind of physics first before I, before okay. I settled on that. So I, I have a question that's very much a, a baseline question. It, it comes from the lunchtime conversation I had with my kids, letting them know who I was interviewing this mm-hmm. afternoon and basically why they had to shut the <laughs> hell up. Uh, <laughs> but but in, in describing, speaking to a particle physicist and talking about you burrowing down and burrowing down, 
they were asking what's the difference between a particle mm. physicist and an astrophysicist? Mm. Would you essentially be at opposite ends of the spectrum from one another? Does one have a relationship with the other? How would you how would you describe that? Is that is a great question, man. You have some smart kids because <laughs> thank you. They're they're <laughs> so smart they have realized that during lockdown grades cannot go down. So now they've got straight A's and straight A pluses in all their classes. They are done with school two weeks early. That's how smart those little cheeky monkeys Wonderful. are. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you know, you, these Daniel. two fields, particle physics and astrophysics used to be really separate. Particle being like, let's drill down and understand the smallest things. Astrophysics mm. being like, let's zoom out, understand the whole universe, how are galaxies formed, what's the fate of the universe, how is it made? And, you know, they're both fundamental, but for a long time it seemed like they were asking very different questions of very different systems. But yeah. recently we've discovered that they're very deeply connected because the rules of mm. the particles... In a, in a in a big sense, determine the fate of the universe, and and under, help us understand the nature of it. And so now, particle physicists go to conferences with astrophysicists, and astrophysicists come to conferences with particle physicists, and we learn to speak each other's language. And you know, this one, for example, really deep and unifying mystery about the universe that has helped bring them together, and that's this question, like, of dark matter. Astrophysicists discovered many decades ago that there's some weird kind of stuff out there in the universe that's invisible, and there's a lot of it, and it's controlling the shape of the universe and its future, and we don't know what it is at all. And then particle physicists start digging into it and thinking like, well, is it made of particles like everything else? What kind of particle could it be? Mm. And then it turns out that we, we believe that it's a kind of particle that was made in the early universe during the Big Bang. And these two communities have come together. And so now there's a whole kind of researcher called an astroparticle physicist that, try, that tries to answer these questions, try to, by peering down at the very small, get answers about the very big. And that's exactly why I love particle physics, because its consequences are everywhere. They're inescapable. You know, the, uh, the rules of the universe really are the rules of the particles or the rules of the things that make up the particles, right? And, you know, yeah, we've drilled yeah. down and we don't know if we are, you know, 10 steps in and there are only 11 steps or if we're 10 steps in and there are a billion <laughs> steps, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. is this the tip of the iceberg <laughs> or is this just an ice cube? We are so clueless. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. And, and, you know, a theme of, um, of our book and of our podcast and some other projects that I do together with, with my collaborator, Jorge Cham, is this sense that we have only begun to learn about the universe, which is something I really believe in. And it's not an attempt to run down science and say science hasn't figured anything out. They're a bunch of idiots. It's mm. an attempt to convince everybody out there, especially children, that there's so much remaining to be discovered, so much exploration that has, hasn't mm, even begun, sure. that in a hundred years they'll look back at us and they'll laugh at us for how clueless we were and how silly we, we were about our <laughs> ideas, you know, the way we look back at, you know, in, in 1900, nobody knew there were other galaxies. They just thought like, boom, yeah, the universe no. is our galaxy. Like, 
what a tiny fraction of the universe did they have in their minds, right? How mind-blowing is it to go like, oh my gosh, the universe is like a gajillion times bigger than we thought. <laughs> that level of discovery, that level of like mind-blowing expansion is still ahead of us many times. Yeah. And so that's to me the exciting thing about particle physics is that it has this opportunity to reveal crazy mind-blowing truths about the universe. Yeah, I just completed a book on Sir Isaac mm -hmm. Newton uh, a week or so ago, and it was interesting to read about if you look at gravity right here in the present acting in front of you, that can be the beginning of understanding how the planets yeah. move, how they stay in relationship to one another. Mm. And so the idea that you could go from particle physics to astrophysics makes mm -hmm. perfect sense. And mm -hmm. on top of that, the fact that, you know, standing there in the 17th century, it looked like Newton had really started to figure this out. And yet here we are, you know, 350 years later, right. still putting branches on these right. trees and leaves on these branches. We constantly seem to be searching for, would you say, the same answers, more detailed answers, different answers? Maybe different questions. What would you say? Different questions, exactly. Every time we get an answer, we get new questions. And the thing I love the most about the story you just told is how obvious Newton's gene, stroke of genius insight seems in hindsight, right? It's like, okay, the same rules yeah. of gravity apply here on Earth and up there. Duh. I mean, that seems obvious, yeah. right? Like, shouldn't the laws be consistent? But at the time, that was a huge step forward, right? And it, and it shows you how moments of insight in physics can change the very way we think, the nature of our minds, the kind of ideas we have, the questions we ask, so that if you could go 500 years in the future, people then wouldn't even understand your questions. And you wouldn't even understand what are they doing? What are they thinking about? If you picked up a children's book from the year 2500 in, on astrophysics, you would be totally lost. You'd be like, what is this talking about? I don't even understand these words, <laughs> right? Take me back to kindergarten. Yeah. I'm going to preschool astrophysics. Yeah. Like, it changes the shape of the human mind in a way that affects the way we think, that affects the questions we ask. So we are never going to run out of these questions, and we are never going to run out of it, because in the end, it's about human curiosity. It's about understanding this weird universe you find yourself in and being desperate to know your place in it and your role in it. It's a very human and mm. personal search. You know, people think sometimes that physics is like cold and calculating and, uh, and, you know, separated from the human experience. But to me, it's all about the human experience. It's like the closest to philosophy you can come while actually still doing science and make, maybe getting answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and to that point, Newton was a natural yes, philosopher. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the, <laughs> the father yeah, of physics. All, all science, uh, all science came philosopher. out of philosophy, right? Uh, it's all birthed there. Right. Uh, let me ask you one question, then I'll turn the floor back off over to Joshua. What's interesting to me? So, so I taught philosophy for oh, a dozen wow. years, uh, and so what was always intriguing to me was the number of students who would sit within a class, and over the course of an hour-long discussion, feel like we'd gone nowhere. <laughs> Now, now, now we cut to science, where where science oftentimes looks like it's being cut off at mm -hmm. its knees, because it's and we just mentioned this previously. There's so many questions, and questions begat questions, and the beginning of an answer is a proof, and it's there as an hypothesis, mm -hmm. and there's there's a lot of deconstructing going on, and so I I get the sense that not a lot of people are looking to science necessarily for answers. Um, a corollary for me 
is to whiskey. Where and Josh and I benefited from this, so I'm not putting this down. Nope. Where with access to the internet, everybody became an mm. expert, and so hundreds and now thousands of people are posting whiskey reviews and they're receiving samples from within the industry, and because they've got access to the internet, their voice, their opinion, their thoughts count as much as anybody mm-hmm. else's. And I'm curious for you how you see that within the world of science, where scientific expertise, to my eye, now means less than it ever has. We've got anti-vaxxers. We've got (laughs) flat earthers. And I, I know we've always had that element in society, but now the internet is allowing them to speak to each other, to echo one another. Right? And so... What's your perspective as somebody who's researching this and is comfortable exploring question after question? How do you communicate? How do you see? How do you see the role of the scientific expert? I agree with you. And I think it's a bit of a tragedy that, you know, scientific expertise and just expertise in general is less valued in society. I think that whatever your political affiliation, we should all be in favor of understanding of truth, of knowledge, you know, it baffles me sometimes that we don't have support from both parties for scientific research. Like whatever your political goals are, are they um, American economic hegemony? Well, cool. Uh, The best way to do that is fund basic research because that's how we got here. (laughs) Is it, you know, American cultural dominance? Well, same answer. You know, is it, uh, you know, new technologies? Is it a, a more powerful military? All the roads to all of those goals, whether you agree with them or not, are, you know, fund basic research. And so it puzzles me that we don't have more support for basic research. And I think the problem is not differing political goals, but the problem is a different relationship with the truth, you know, with facts and knowledge. And if you mm-hmm. no longer value mm-hmm. facts and knowledge and, you know, the expertise that goes along with discovering it, then you're taking a dangerous road. It's not any longer just a difference in political ideology. I think this is a way to build society. I think that's a way to build society. It's, a, it's you know, I don't want to be informed in my choices or I don't want facts to get in the way mm-hmm. of my goals. And I think that's much more dangerous. And I, I think it's... It's potentially devastating, yeah. you know, to to our society. Again, regardless of which side of the fence uh, politically you sit on. Um, now, my yeah. personal research, particle physics, doesn't really inform any policy choices, right? Like, we don't measure the Higgs boson and then decide to increase welfare payments or you know or anything like that. <laughs> and for for a long yeah. time, yeah. that's been um, a relief for me. You know, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, home of the atomic bomb and my parents both worked on weapons research and so well, they worked hmm. on you know systems that had real personal and moral questions you know should mm-hmm. you be building a weapon that's pointed at civilians uh, you know literally threatening to kill millions of <laughs> civilians in a moment's burst in order to protect your national security like that's a complicated moral question i didn't want to ever have to answer yeah so that's one reason that yep. particle physics was interesting to me so you know <laughs> i have colleagues here my wife for example she's a microbiologist she's she does virus research and she her research has important consequences for vaccines and pandemics and stuff like this so i'm a little mm. bit more insulated 
from that because there are no immediate practical consequences. So nobody's trying to shut me up because of the answers to my research. Nobody's like writing me like, no, I think the Higgs boson is different or whatever. It's not become a political issue for my actual research yeah. yet. But you're, you're not getting people saying it's dangerous? You're not getting people saying we shouldn't be hurtling <laughs> particles at one another? <laughs> Certainly. You're not, you're not hearing from people saying the creation of black holes should never occur. No, you're right. We uh, we do get a little bit of that. There is some <laughs> there is some conspiracy theories, you know, that we're maybe uh -huh. risking the planet or you know going to open up uh -huh. portals in other dimensions or all this kind of stuff. Uh, there certainly is a little uh -huh. bit of that, and we have to very carefully debunk that. And you're right. You know, the voice of the science scientists and the experts is not always listened to as much as like Joe from Florida who says he thinks that it's dangerous and we should shut it down. Um, so yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, to, to that to that very point, so we, we had a few listeners send in questions, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the listeners, a uh, guy by the name of Tim Musha, po <laughs> po <laughs> good old Tim, good old Tim. He, he posted a picture in our Facebook group, uh, and it's, you know, a picture from inside of CERN. Okay. And the meme, so it's a meme, <laughs> and the meme says, if you feel perhaps you are in the wrong universe, remember all the weird stuff that started <laughs> happening after they turned on the Large Hadron Collider. And so Tim wants to know is, is it possible that the Collider already destroyed the universe and we just didn't notice it? Wow. Wow. Um, I think that's more of a philosophy question, you know, than a There you go. Uh, so I think we'll have another sip of whiskey. Wow. Um, there's sort of a lot to unpack there. One is, you know, the reasonable question, do scientists know what they're doing and is there a chance that what they're going to do is going to endanger humanity? There have mm -hmm. been times when scientists have made decisions that uh, potentially can endanger humanity, like when they did the first test of the atomic bombs in New Mexico, they weren't sure, sure. whether it would ignite the atmosphere or not. And, you know, igniting the atmosphere big consequences for basically everybody on the planet. They went ahead, right. they did the test anyway. Fortunately, atmosphere remained unignited. Um, now, when we do particle collisions at CERN, there's this question about whether those collisions could create a miniature black hole. And that's mm -hmm. pretty cool because we want to understand black holes and black holes are awesome and they're fascinating. And if we could see them and study them and learn about how to make them, we could answer some really deep riddles about the nature of the universe and gravity and the fate of the universe mm. and all that stuff. But, mm. of course, black holes are dangerous, right? They suck stuff up and they grow and they get bigger and bigger. And so the question is, could you cre create black holes which then grow and eat the whole Earth? And so that's not an unreasonable question. And we answered yep. it essentially by thinking about whether these kind of collisions had already happened. And it turns out that the Earth is being bombarded by particles from space all the time. So the collisions that we're making in the Large Hadron Collider are not the most powerful collisions even here on Earth. There are particles with much ah. higher energy hitting the atmosphere all the time. And so far, no black holes have been made and the Earth's been around for billions of years. So that and a little bit of math tells you that this level of collision is not likely to create a black hole to suck us all up in. So basically what, what you're doing at CERN is a light version of what's hitting us on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. but you've just made it observable. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. you know, you're turning a fan on in your living room and there's a gale blowing outside. 
And you're asking, is this fan going to destroy the world? Well, you know, if wind destroyed the world, then it would have happened already. And so, yeah, we're, we're inundated by particles all the time from space. Yeah. It's actually, it's quite fascinating because those particles are crazy high energy. They're like thousands or million times more energetic than anything we can do here on Earth. And we don't know where they come from. Like, there's nothing out there that we know that can make particles that energy. Like, you ask astrophysicists, you say, what's the highest energy particle you ever expect to find anywhere in the universe? And they say, all right, take yeah. a particle from a supernova, slingshot it around a black hole, zip it up this yeah. way and that way the other way. They get to a number which is like 10,000 times less energy than the stuff we see coming from space, which means there's something out there that's capable of making redonkulously high energy particles. We don't know what it is or wow. who it is, right? <laughs> my person I wish our listeners could have seen your face and hand gesture there. That was I'm not priceless. saying it's aliens, but my my personal fantasy is that, you know, maybe there are alien particle physicists out there and they've built an awesome collider somewhere and we're seeing like, you know, the um the pollution from it, the like the you know, the remnants yeah. of it. So there are a lot of big questions out there. One of them is not, are we going to destroy the world with a large Hadron Collider? I agree the world is weird <laughs> and strange, and it's gotten even stranger in the last five or ten years, you know. But uh, I don't think we can pin that on the large Hadron Collider. I, I felt as if toward the end you got a little ancient aliens there, and I wanted to see your hair go up like that that host. Um, yeah, I'm not saying it's not aliens. <laughs> <laughs> that that show, by the way, is such a guilty pleasure of mine. Oh, it's just, it's it's it's, it's just fun, so silly. but it's also it's a good demonstration mm -hmm. of how you can turn anything, which is not actually a controversy or a mystery, and make it sound dramatic with the right production <laughs> values and the lighting. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you know, you just ignore all reasonable explanations for weird phenomena, and you can make it sound amazing. Yeah. Um, so exactly. it's, it's, you know, a pleasure, but it's definitely a guilty pleasure because it's certainly not a balanced look at any of that information. And we, we wrestle about with this topic on the podcast, our podcast all the time, um, which I don't think I had a, a chance to mention. I'm a co-host of our, our podcast, Daniel and Jorge explain the universe together with Jorge Cham, my friend and, and collaborator, who's the, um, famous author of, of, um, PhD comics. And we tackle stuff about the universe and particles, but sometimes we talk about aliens because it's one of my favorite mm -hmm. topics. And not in the sense of like, oh my gosh, did you see that latest flying saucer? But in the question of, in the sense of like, here's an important question about what it's like to be human is, are there other sentient beings and what is it like to be them and how is it different? And like, right. talk about the deepest question of philosophy, right? It's like, what is it like to be a bat? Or what is it like to be mm -hmm. a slime mold from Alpha Centauri, right? So in, in the sense of just being yeah. like a curious person in the universe, that's one of the questions I wanted the answer to. And so if there is intelligent life out there in the universe, I want to meet them. I want to talk physics with them. I want to talk philosophy and mm -hmm. math and whiskey and all that stuff with them. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there are a lot of folks who listen to our podcast who want to know, are aliens visiting us? Are, you know, those, how could all these people be drawing aliens and having them look the same and not be real? And... You know, there's a lot of really interesting science in are there aliens in the universe? And there's more interesting psychology in, you know, was mm. my aunt says she was abducted by aliens and had an un, 
uh, unpleasant, intimate experience, uh, is she telling the truth? You know, so it's a, it's a, it's a lot of uh-huh. interesting mixture there in like <laughs> pop culture and psychology and actual hardcore science. In response to those questions, do you ever get to say, ma'am, I'm just a PhD particle physicist? No, no I was saying, I'm a doctor, so please take off your pants. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's Joshua's answer to everybody. Yeah, wow. <laughs> One of the privileges. And now cough. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> So and then your wife says, Daniel, get back in the car. That's right. He's not a doctor. He's a PhD. We're in the parking lot of a supermarket. <laughs> Sir, so, this is a Wendy's. Yeah. So I want us to rewind just a little bit because you brought up something really interesting about aliens. And I had, I had a question around that. But okay. before, we, before we do, I want us to pour... Our next whiskey, but let's talk about what we just had before. Okay. Um, Daniel, what's the first whiskey, whiskey that you poured? The uh, first one I poured is this one you guys sent me. It's the um, Croftingia. Am I pronouncing it right? Oh. Croftingia. Yeah, Croftingia. 10 years old, single malt scotch whiskey. Quite delicious. A nice peaty mm. treat to start out with. Very peaty. Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys asked me what kind I like, and I, I like a smoky, peaty whiskey. And I don't know if that makes me a, a whiskey um, noob or not, but I like it. I like the I like tasting nope. the earth in it or something. I'm not sure why yeah. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was quite delicious. Yeah. With ice, I've tried it. And without ice, you know, to get the scientific experience. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. I'm curious. I, I, never, I, I never drink single malts on ice. I'm curious what happens to the peat and that smoke ah. when you then chill it down what did uh, you it find? mutes it a little bit i like it peatier and smokier mm-hmm. than my wife does and so when we we tasted this um when it arrived she i think she described it as um eyebrow curling and uh <laughs> I, like, well, okay. I only yeah, take that as a compliment <laughs> i think that's what they were going for um so she prefers it on ice because i think it um you know it dilutes it a little bit it tones it down well, I, yep. I like it neat. Yep. Well, and, and and certainly everything we put out is at natural cask strength. Mm-hmm. And so toning down that alcohol level m- makes sense as well. You're saying I'm not supposed uh, to drink? I'm not supposed to drink it pure? No, <laughs> dude, mine is, <laughs> mine is completely uncut in this glass. So, no, no, no. I'm just, I was just <coughs> saying if one's palate mm. uh, demands a, a softer oh, entry... See, yes. Then a little bit of water, a little mm-hmm. bit of ice is perfectly mm-hmm. acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the thing for us is we're very much texture mm-hmm. guys, and so the ice will actually invert the lipids, and so you'll actually have a thinning out of the texture as mm-hmm. well as the dilution from the water. You'll also have the inversion of the lipids, and so I like it at room temperature, a bit like an, an olive oil, where you get yeah. all of good those comparisons yep. going across your. Palate. I didn't even know there were lipids in whiskey, really. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Oh, are, there, are there more yeah. calories in this thing than just from the alcohol? Wow. I'm going to have an extra workout this <laughs> yeah, afternoon. Well, <laughs> oh, well, what is it they say? One, one dram of scotch is the same number of calories as one banana. <laughs> and right? I, would, I would much rather have three scotches <laughs> than three bananas. No, so. it's actually, and this is, that, that's, uh, we have to discuss bananas later on. But actually, <laughs> um, there's less, there are fewer calories in whiskey than there is in a single banana. That, that was the statement. Oh, all right. Fewer? There are fewer. Yeah, because for one ounce of whiskey, I think it's 60 calories. 
Oh, and for a banana, it's around 190. I guess it depends oh, on I thought, the size. I, of I banana. thought banana was right on 90. No, 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 no. It's a bit. Okay, a bit these are the hard hitting questions. <laughs> you guys want to talk about aliens? I will now be looking up number of calories in your standard banana. So, so my, my question to you is, mm-hmm. and, and it gets back to aliens, which I, I firmly believe that there has to be life. You know, if not within our own galaxy, which is 100,000 light years across, one of the many trillion other galaxies, there has to be sentient life, I believe, you know, more than just microbes. And this is, this is my personal belief. But where does that personal belief come from? I mean, I, I, f- there I share it There you go. That's the yeah. exact yeah. question. Yeah. Exactly. So my personal belief is, is just, is, uh, it's really just down to odds. Right, that mm-hmm. that I, I, f- I find it less comprehensible that there would be no life than there being life. Right, it doesn't make sense that we would be the only ones. What? Well, what if you know it's a one in a quadrillion chance, and then the only ones that uh, you know survive that role are the ones that ask, "Is there other life in the universe?" You know, we just it's, it's the old. It's the old Homer Simpson, right? Oh, you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I don't use Homer Simpson often enough in science conversations. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. I, I, used to, I used to use the book uh, Simpsons and Philosophy in my philosophy class. So we have covered the wide gamut of the Simpsons. Um, so my question is, let's, and, and maybe this isn't the proper question, but my question is based on the assumption that given the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of potential Goldilocks mm-hmm. planets there mm-hmm. are within the universe, if there is just one other planet with sentient life mm-hmm. and they visit us now, and we, we can, without a shadow of doubt, have proof that they exist, what does that say about most modern religions with us being made in the image of God? And does that make science and, and religion mutually exclusive? Like, does this change our approach? Should this change our approach to how we view, how the religious amongst us view life and the origins thereof? There's no doubt our particle physicist wow. friend is ready to discuss the impact on world religions <laughs> of the one in a quadrillion chance that there's alien life out oh, there. Yeah. Daniel, take it away, I my feel, friend. I feel spectacularly uninformed and uh, unprepared, um, but I have things to say anyway. Um, what else are Just like us. For? Yeah. Um, wow. Well, you know, um, I think that's a great question. And I think, though, it's hard for me to understand already how people can reconcile a feeling of having been created in the image of the creator of the universe when the universe is so vast and we are such a tiny part of it anyway. Even if we are alone, even if we are the only ones, it's hard to, yeah. to, to believe in our elevation as a critical element or playing a central role when we're off in this dusty little mm. moat 
Um, and we've been around only very recently. The universe has been around for billions of years and we've only recently shown up. So I think uh, one lesson that science teaches us is it's continuously moving us off of the center stage, moving Earth from the center of the solar system, moving the solar system from the center of the cosmos in any meaningful way, even moving the yeah. Milky Way from being an important part, for, to, from being the entire universe to being just one dot among many. So it's hard for me yeah. to imagine any any system of understanding that places humans at the center of it. Um, uh, and that being said, I, I think you asked another interesting question, which is, you know, are science and religion mutually exclusive? I think that they they both answer interesting questions, but sometimes they answer different questions. You know, I'm, mm. I'm not the kind of scientist who says that science can answer every question. For example, you know, should I have gotten out of bed in the morning? I, you know, that's not a science question. Uh, what should I right. do with my life? Uh, you know, do I feel happy? These are not science questions. It's not an experiment I can do that will answer these questions. Um, so science is a great way of informing ourselves and building knowledge about the universe and unpacking it in an unbiased way or, you know, in as objective a way as we can. But there are deep questions about the human condition that I think it can never answer. So I think it's a mistake to imagine that it's a replacement for all other human thought and philosophy. I think it's it's valuable in informing us. Um, and I wonder if we meet aliens, if they will have some sort of, you know, dichotomy between the philosophy and the science, or if they even do yeah. science, or you know, what kind of math do they do? And then, man, I got so many questions lined up for those aliens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're living your best geek life when you wonder what kind of math yes, aliens do, are doing. Seriously, like that's getting. I it had on. A, a conversation <laughs> with a friend recently about whether aliens think about integers. You know, like imagine <laughs> all the number line, and then think like. You know, humans putting points on that line and saying one is a special place and two is a special place. Is that just like the way yeah. we think because we have like digits that are separated? And if if our fingers were just like, you know, a big smooth uh, web, would we not be thinking that way? Or if our bodies were not so disconnected from each other that we had to come up with this idea of like the division between me and you? Like, I mean, from a particle mm. physics point of view. What's the difference between me and you? There's just a stream of particles connecting us. Any line you put is totally arbitrary, right? Say this is where my body ends and yours begins. So you can imagine mm -hmm. a different way to think about the universe that doesn't even have integers. So yeah, me and my geek friends totally talk about alien mathematics, wow. even when we're not drinking whiskey <laughs> in the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not doing that, you're missing out. <laughs> there you go. Welcome to this side of the line. So, so with that in mind, I had a geek conversation, uh, and actually, I, I poured my I poured my second whiskey, which is the Ardmore eight year old that was matured in a Lafroid casking. It, mm, that's what I have right. in my nice, Beautiful. The geek question I had was with a, a, a friend of ours, a, a friend of you know both me and Jason, a guy by the name of Bino Gopal, mm -hmm. and uh, he he's a tech guy out in California. And he goes on all of these like different cruises, and one of which I know he's been on a couple times have been these Star Trek cruises, right? He's an uber fun cosplay kind of geek. Cool. Guy. And we're having this conversation over a few whiskeys about my desire for having beaming technology here and now. And he said, "Yeah, that's fine and dandy. However," Let's say you wanted to go to the supermarket and you beam yourself over to the supermarket, 
the you that went over there will not necessarily be the you that arrives there. And you may be arriving there for a reason, for a, a reason other than the you that are, that's you meant to go there in the first place. <laughs> and, 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 you know, as you can imagine, my head kind of exploded a bit, but I, you know, as my understanding is that is, that is a quantum thought process there. And I, I wonder if you could pull that apart a little bit mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. explain why that potentially could be a different me than the me wanting to go to the grocery store. Yeah. Oh, this is a great question because it ties in like science fiction and actual physics and philosophy because it's basically, it's ship of Theseus all, all the way down, right? <laughs> you know, and the question basically is like, you know, if you do Star Trek style teleporter, is that really you that's on the other side of the receiving side? Mm-hmm. Or have you been mm-hmm. killed and cloned and reassembled and therefore it's like you prime? And uh, it's huh. a hard question and if you think about it from the point of view of particle physics, you get sort of two different perspectives on it. One is, you know, that what are your particles doing anyway? Like, say you were going to walk to the grocery store instead of beaming there. You know, particles, as they move through the universe, don't actually move. Like, you think of things as moving. Hmm. Balls fly through yeah. the air. You walk to the supermarket, right? And you, you have this notion that things move smoothly, that if you were at mm. A and then you were at B, that in between there was some path between A and B. Otherwise, how did you get to B, right? You know, whole yeah. murder mystery mm-hmm. genres are built on this, like somebody was killed in a locked room and then, you know, how did they get out, etc. But this is an assumption that's come out of your experience of the macroscopic world, and it's not a property of the universe itself. And when you drill down to the quantum mechanical stuff, particles don't move. They appear and exist in snapshots, And then later, there's another snapshot, but they don't necessarily go between them. And we see this all the time, like a particle can appear on one side of a barrier, an impenetrable, uncrossable barrier, and a moment later be on the other side. And you might think, well, that's impossible, right? Well, no, it's possible for it to be here. It's possible for it to be there. It can't go through, but it doesn't have to, right? It doesn't necessarily have Mm. to go through. It's called quantum tunneling. So the right way to think Mm. about particles moving through the universe is that they don't. They have snapshot, snapshot, snapshot. It's much more like watching a movie. You know, movies are not actually continuous moving images, obviously, right? It's a bunch of snapshots that your brain puts together into a story. Well, that's the universe. The universe is actually a bunch of snapshots, super tiny, super fast, that your brain has interpreted into a story. So when you're going to the grocery store, you're like doing a bajillion little tiny teleportations all the time. Every particle in your body is doing that already. And so from that point of view, it's not really a difference between teleporting to the grocery store and walking there. And the the other thing I like to think about is something that blows my mind about the universe, and I think speaks to this question, is what makes you you? Because you Mm -hmm. are built out of particles, right? Electrons and protons and neutrons. And we could Mm -hmm. dig deeper, but we don't have to. And the thing that's fascinating is that, you know, every electron is the same and every proton is the same. So the thing that makes you, you is not the nature, is not the nature of the particles that you're made out of because you and the, and, and your okay. buddy and a block of coal and a pile of lava are all made out of the same particles in the same amounts. Like, you know, you, what's the recipe for a cubic 
um, for, for a kilogram of hamster and a kilogram of lava and a kilogram of person, it's the same recipe. It's the same number of protons and neutrons yeah. and electrons, which means the thing that makes one of them lava okay. or cookie dough or, you know, you is the arrangement of the particles. That's what makes you you is the arrangement. It doesn't okay. matter what the particles are. It matters how they're put together. So if you take you apart at home and rebuild you in the grocery store, that is what you <laughs> is, right? That's, what, that, that's the defining you-ness is the arrangement of particles, not the history of those particles, not whether that ship originally had those planks in it, but the arrangement in this particular order that makes, what you, that makes you you. All I wanted to hear this afternoon was you saying, that's what you is. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> That's, I, have, I have lived for that. Yeah, and that, that was is, grammatically I've lived correct. i that more than I thought I had. That was, that was terrific. That's either too much whiskey or too much philosophy or both, you know. <laughs> Never too much of <laughs> Okay, so with that in mind, and, and I know that you've watched this because I, I, I started watch, uh, listening to an episode where you mentioned this, do you think the TV show Devs <laughs> got it right? You know, the, the, this, this idea that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's this quantum idea and the different yous, which ultimately become almost as if you are not able to make a decision for yourself, that it's all predetermined depending on which mm-hmm. realm of reality you're in. And for, for our listeners out there who don't know what the show uh, Devs is, it's on FX and Hulu with uh, Nick Offerman, and it deals with the idea of, of quantum computing oh, and, yeah. and with, the, with the hopes of looking not just into the past, but using the ability yeah. to look into the past to also mm-hmm. predict what would happen in the future. Is, that, is that Devs? That's Devs, yeah. That's Devs, yeah. Okay. I, all the time we've been talking, I was thinking about living with yourself. Did you see that with Paul Rudd on yes. Netflix? Yes. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Right. And so that very question of who are you yeah. and, you know, the teleportation and the you that was teleported is now dead. Um, well, I agree with you. I think living with yourself was wonderful. I think it really explored all those topics about who who is you and all that stuff. And Paul Rudd was great. Uh, and it was funny and surprising and clever and well-written and, and all that stuff. Uh, Devs, I really wanted to like because uh, I like Nick yeah. Offerman and yep. I like a lot of those themes and concepts. But to me, it, it didn't really make much sense. Um, I sort of two technical problems with it. And then, you know, I think it does touch on a really interesting question, though. But the technical problems for me are that, you know, say you wanted to predict the future and in the show they have this powerful computer that can predict the future or a minute or a, a, an hour or you could even extrapolate into the past 2,000 years and see Christ on the cross and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. But, you know, think about whether that's possible and what you'd need to do to make it happen. And whether it's possible, you know, depends on whether or not the universe is deterministic or random. And we can talk mm-hmm. about that in a minute. But, like, let's say that it's deterministic. Say that... You know, everything is determined by the current set of, of particle locations and directions. And all you need to do is compute to say, I know how particles interact. I, so if I can calculate what's going to happen in a millisecond or in a half a yeah. second or in a second. Think about how much data that would require. Not just computing power, but data. You'd need to know where all the particles were and what direction mm. they were going in. 
And so even if you had an all-powerful computer that could calculate that, how are you like scanning the earth to figure out what the current snapshot is and then propagating that forward in time? He had the computing. He didn't have the data. There's no way to yeah, get that data. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. I, fe- I, felt, I felt like that was weird. I, I wish they had touched on that. And the second technical issue is that they use quantum computers in that show as a sort of like magic supercomputer. Like, oh, hard <laughs> problem, quantum computer. Well, it's like, all right, cool. But, you know, there's a that sort of misinformation. Like, I like science fiction. I like when they invent new ideas. I like when they extrapolate into new ideas. I'm not a big fan of when they propagate common misunderstandings about current technology. Because quantum computers, they are not magical supercomputers. They're fascinating. But it's like, it's just another way to do computing. And they're very good at very specific kinds of problems, Mm. which have nothing to do with predicting the future or doing massively parallel computations of of zillions of particles. So that annoyed me a little bit as a physicist. But I think the heart of it is fascinating. It's like, is the universe deterministic or is it random? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that at the smallest scale, the universe is quantum mechanical. Which, which means that it is fu- fundamentally random. Like there's when an electron has to decide which side of the barrier it's going to be on, a random number is thrown. And that's a magical and mysterious to us because it makes hmm. no sense. Like, how does that happen? Where is this die that's rolled that decides where the electron is? Yeah. Um, all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, it's a really deep, fascinating question of philosophy. Um, but I felt like in the show, it was just a bit of a, I don't know, it was a bit of a more word salad than actual penetrating philosophy. <laughs> so I got a little disappointed in it. Well, I, I do remember you saying at least a few times on the podcast that it, it it's like a, it's a pet peeve for you that when there's a problem and you can't figure out how to forward the story, just use the word quantum, oh insert God. word here. and <laughs> Quantum and, banana. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, And I, you know, I can see how that could be frustrating. um, But at the same time for the, for, for the masses, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't, we don't necessarily get it. We say, Ooh, quantum. Oh yes. That's it. (laughs) Well, it taps into, you know, our sense that we don't understand everything and that there are, there's the capability for like dramatic science advances that could change the way stories happen. And that's all Mm. true. But you don't have to tap into like misunderstandings. To me, that's that's a bit lazy. You know, like reach out to a scientist, find out what actually true crazy stuff there is in the universe we could talk about. Or hey, speculate wildly about the future. That's cool. But you know, propagating misunderstandings is is to me doing a bit of a disservice because part of science fiction is also a little bit of science communication. You know, showing mm. off what science has learned and the, the, its capability to change the human experience and to change the way we think about the universe. And um, to me, science fiction plays an important role in science. But you know, um, yeah. anyway, I'm I'm probably more particular about it than a lot of people. So <laughs> that's fine. It's not all written for me. I get it. Yeah. Um, so tell me about this uh, third whiskey here. This one is the one casked in uh, something that used to hold another kind of whiskey in it. Okay, so that was so that was my whiskey pour number two. Yeah, Jason, do you want to talk about that one? Yeah. So the Ardmore, um, even though it's smoky and peaty, actually comes from the Highlands, which isn't traditionally well. Depends how you coin the term traditionally, but in modern thought, hasn't always been associated with peat. P 
peat and smoke we often associate with Isla, the Hebridean island off the west coast of Scotland. So Ardmore is okay. a peated highland whiskey. And when Joshua and I got this, we got this as a sample, we were expecting highland peat, which is a, a little more mm. fragrant, a little more honeyed, a little more floral. But instead, Josh and I kept going back and forth. But aren't you getting a bit of salt? Aren't you getting a bit of the coast? Are you getting a little bit of pork crackling in here? And, uh, and to <laughs> us, it was redolent of, a, of an Isla whiskey. And so it, it came mm. to pass that once we returned to the person who supplied us with the sample, that yes, it was an Ardmore. Yes, it was a Highland malt distillate but it had been matured in an ex-Lafroy cask. So we had that bit of Highland peat going on in the distillate, but then we had those notes of Isla peat going on in the cask, and as part of the maturation, that ended up in the final product. Wow. So that little bit of cognitive dissonance that we experienced going through the tasting process, it all made sense. We just had to trust our senses, which <laughs> mm -hmm. seemed like seemed like a perfect whiskey to share with you. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's it's amazing. So why do they do that? Why do they um, put one whiskey in and then the other one? Is that to create this this uh, sort of double layer of uh, of experiences? Yeah, yeah. Or or sometimes uh, sometimes what you'll find is this was distilled in two thousand and eight, and so in two thousand and eight, somewhere around two thousand five, two thousand and six. Scottish producers realized there was this global demand for single malt scotch that they were not going to hit uh, with current um, production. And so they then started running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But as they were creating all that distillate, they were running out of casks into which they could put this distillate for maturation. And so in a lot of cases, they were just using any wood they can get their hands on. Uh, Ardmore and Laphroaig share a parent company. And so it would make sense for Ardmore to have access to ex-bourbon casks, or in this case, ex-Lafroig casks, coming from the distillery. Um, Lafroig also does a lot of maturation on the mainland. So as they were bottling Lafroig, they would have then, sitting in Glasgow, just outside Glasgow, they would have had all these empty casks that they could have just run up the A9 to the Ardmore distillery. Mm. Conversely, Ardmore could have filled new make into trucks and then sent those trucks down to Glasgow. So the casks wouldn't have had to go anywhere. The whiskey would have come to the casks and then would have been filled and then stored in the same warehouses that they had just been maturing the same Lafroy in. So it's always, it's always commerce, it's always economics. Um, we, it's easy to fall in love with the romance of whiskey and it, it is, to me, a, a very romantic product. But it's it's also it's also logistics. A commercial product <laughs> right yeah. it, 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 at the end of the day it is produced in a factory even if that factory sits in one of the most bucolic settings you can imagine it's still you know is turning raw ingredients into final products well and then yeah. maturation to follow that thought down uh, a little further to go down that rabbit hole You've got another set of distilleries um, that are owned by Diageo, the Kalila Distillery in Lagavulin. Mm -hmm. Now, Kalila is predominantly used for the Johnny Walker blends, like, you know, Johnny Black Label and, and, and Double Black. But 
all of the cask filling and all of the cask emptying and blending happens in Glasgow. And so what happens is, you know, Colila is making between four and seven million liters of spirit per year. Wow. Because they have to fill, you know, Johnny Walker, which is obviously a very big blend. But to make their lives easier, when they're emptying their Kalila casks for Johnny Walker, they're then refilling those casks with Lagavulin New Make Spirit because it's all there. Mm -hmm. And they can save the money by not buying more casks and just reusing the casks from one of their sister distilleries. And so, you know, any of the Lagavulin that you've had, if you've had Lagavulin before, like the 16-year-old, mm -hmm. which is a classic, speaking of Nick Offerman, that's, that's a favorite yeah, one of his, exactly. um, you know, will have spent time in a cask that previously held Kalila. So something that's been going on for quite, quite a while, but the Ardmore that you have in your glass, my understanding that this was their first, the first time of them dipping a toe into, well, what does our spirit do if we put it into this ex Isla cask? And they filled a few hundred casks, and we just happened to get one of them. Fascinating. Well, yeah. I feel like so many amazing inventions in human history must have been due to, you know, accidents or economic constraints or like, oh, you know, we don't have this. You know, try stick some of that in it. Oh my God, it's amazing. What is this new thing? You know? Uh, so, yeah, don't... Yeah. Well, it's, it's the very question of how whiskey ended up in casks to right. begin with. Yeah, exactly. Right? If, if you're sitting on a farmstead with a liquid and you need to get it to market, what do you have sitting around you? you you've got various products that are sitting in, at that time, much smaller wooden casks. Mm. But you put your liquid in that wooden cask, you attach it to a horse, you ride it to market. Now you've got that wood influence that's taken out some of the harsher edges. I'm not sure how quickly it would have happened. But, you know, you, you could see a product being born just through necessity, yeah, just from absolutely. trying to get liquid across a distance. What else did you have, Josh? Oh, did you, do you want to lead into the, the Amrut then? Did you have the Amrut? You've got the Amrut. Yeah, I got it right here. This is the one from India, right? Yes. Mm. Yeah, so this one, uh, this was, I think this may have been the first time we bottled a malt whiskey that wasn't Scotch whiskey. Mm. And so Amra has been around since 1948, but producing different kinds of spirits, brandies and rums and things like that. Um, how long they've been producing single malt, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but you know, the brand itself started making a splash within the U.S., I want to say 2009-ish, 2010, somewhere around there. Yeah, I want to say 2009 Fusion won third place in the Whiskey Bible. There you go, there you go. Or was awarded third place in the Whiskey Bible. Wow. What it introduced to the U.S. and really to the world was what whiskey could be like when produced in a climate that's a much warmer temperature. Right. So in Scotland, you know, you're, you're dealing with crap weather all the time. It's wet. <laughs> it's humid. But what's nice about that is mm -hmm. you have very little angel share. You're losing around on average one and a half to two percent of volume year over year. Your ABV goes down, down, down. But in a hot weather climate like India, the angel share is closer to, say, 12 percent. And the ABV goes up, 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 up because it's uh -huh. drier 
And so the dry climate is pulling the water out and leaving the alcohol in the cask. And just to give you an idea of how quickly this matured, yes, it's only five years old, but we selected it as a four-year-old. Wow. It didn't get bottled until maybe nine months later as a five-year-old. And in that time, we lost 29 bottles worth of liquid. Wow. (laughs) So maturation happens really, really fast. And because of that, and also you're dealing with uh, Indian barley, right? So you're dealing with a different terroir for for one of the base um, components itself. Right. And just that climate, that change in climate, completely affects how that whiskey matures, how that cask, you know, breathes in the in the warmer than cold temperature and back and forth and back and forth. And it makes for an incredibly mature whiskey at a relatively young age. And how is it viewed in the community? Is like, is India a young upstart on the whiskey scene and, and uh, people are skeptical or is it, uh, you know, is it the new California when it comes to, to wine sort of a thing? <laughs> I would say there was definitely skepticism and then when someone like Jim Murray places Fusion third in the Whiskey Bible, all the skepticism went away <laughs> virtually overnight. Uh, I would also say in, in North America, those who have been importing and distributing Amrut have done yeoman's work and have absolutely mm-hmm. pounded the pavement mm-hmm. showing what that distillery mm-hmm. has to offer. And, and it's very rare now you know, we're now talking a decade removed from Fusion coming third. It's very rare to meet somebody now who remains sceptical of what Amrit has to offer. Um, and, and I would even say mm-hmm. Amrit even went farther than that, where then Kavalan came to market, and Kavalan yep. is out of Taiwan. And I would say, because of the work that Amrit put in, Taiwan with Kavalan had an easier route to market mm-hmm. Because people understood younger ages, but a more aggressive angel share, and you can have very developed maturation at a younger age. Uh, And I, you know, and now Paul John has come in from Goa, and and I think they're hitting the ground running because of the work of Cavalan and the work of Amrut. So it very much is a, a rising tide lifts all ships. And it's been great to see. And it's interesting because when Joshua said he'd sent you a sample of that, are, there's going to be some listeners who are swooning listening to this, that you're actually drinking the Amrut 5. <laughs> uh, it, it remains one of our most sought-after oh. bottlings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been sold out now for five years? Uh, four yeah, years, maybe five four years? or five years. In, in such an interesting statement because we've bottled whiskeys as old as 45 years old. Uh, wow. And so to know that a five-year-old is more sought after, uh, more revered than a 45-year-old that we've released, I think really says something to the fact that the, the age doesn't matter. It's all about it's yeah. all about the flavor, right? Well, you know, I did a little bit of um, data collection. I had three samples here. We had friends over uh, a couple of evenings ago. And so I, I had people sample these three. And, you know, the Amrut was the clear favorite among all of those. Mm-hmm. There you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. For, for me, it's, it's got this wonderful syrupy texture to it with these really rich tropical fruit notes. Mm-hmm. Almost like drinking 
the syrup out of a fruit cocktail <laughs> tin, if, <laughs> if you ever had that growing up. Uh-huh. Like, just so deliciously sweet, but but at what, 62.8% alcohol? Yeah, amazing. Right? It's a serious, serious, you know, dram, but it drinks so easily and protects your taste buds, right, all the way down. So, yeah, yeah it's... Yeah, it's, it's, it's an honour to speak with you and, and that Amrut goes part of the way to show you how much of an honour it is. <laughs> well, it's an honour for me to receive these delicious whiskeys and, uh, and to get to talk to you guys with some really fun questions. We um, had a, just a couple listener questions. Do you mind yeah. us touching on them? Oh, I'd love to. Okay. And then we really have to get to the banana questions. <laughs> Actually, let me ask that. So people, right. who, people who don't know, so I, I, I've been listening to your podcast, I want to say, for two years. I, I could have the time oh, completely wow. wrong. But I've been listening Thank you. to it for a while because <laughs> I really enjoy science being delivered in an incredibly digestible format. And, and, and that's what it is. You know, it's, it's part of the reason why I think people quite enjoy Neil deGrasse Tyson because he delivers science in a very entertaining and digestible format. And I think you, you and Jorge do the same. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, but you always make me laugh too. And there's, there's been this common theme about bananas, banana peels, and the smoking thereof. <laughs> and so I wanted to know... Who's more fascinated with bananas, you or Jorge? And does smoking banana peels really take you to a different quantum reality? Um, well, you know, Jorge and I have been friends for a long time. We started working together more than 10 years ago on some science collaboration projects. And um, we had this book, etc. And something I learned about Jorge is that whenever we do a public event, he always disappears two minutes before we're about to go on stage. And the okay. first time it's, it's nerve wracking. It's like, are you guys already? Uh, uh, where's Jorge? Oh my God. Is, I don't know. I can't find him. And everybody's hearts. And that's because he goes off to some quiet place and he eats a banana and he gets himself sort of mentally prepared. And so, um, you know, we've been having long running jokes as, as you will with good friends, you'll have long running inside jokes um, for, for um, that build up over time. And this is one of them. And I'm always teasing him about bananas. And uh, so it came, it appeared one day on the podcast, we made a banana joke, and then it just sort of built on itself. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're not podcast experts, this is the first podcast we've ever done. And somebody gave us the advice once of like, let your listeners know a little bit about who you are, yeah. they can get to know you a little bit, and, you know, then they feel like they're part of it or something. And so this is a way to like, make it a little bit personal, a little bit goofy. I also think some words are funny. Like, I don't know if you're a fan of Dave Barry. I'm a huge fan of his writing. He's a, a Miami Herald uh, columnist. Okay. And, and he, he just, he's just hilarious. And he wrote an article about humor. And he said, you know, some words are funny, like weasel or booger. Yeah. You know, they're just, yeah. they have hilarity in them. And so we try to find those words sometimes, just keep it goofy. Um, and the banana peels thing is a sort of reverse joke that he, He's reflecting it back on me because uh, there was a time in my life when I was a um, uh, heavy user of, you know, of various um, plants that one wouldn't mention on a family friendly <laughs> podcast such as ours. And so instead we would joke about banana peels. Um, uh, you know, uh, so he eats the banana, I smoke the peels. Together we understand the universe. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the unifying banana. I just banana. thought you were trying to av- <laughs> I, I thought you were trying to avoid the 105 calories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. So Scott Ranau, hopefully I, I pronounced his name right. Maybe it's Runau. There's, there's no chance you pronounced the name right. <laughs> it's so it's tried, R- Clearly we're trying to pronounce it correctly. So. Maybe we could try this together, guys. He pr- it's spelled R-U-H-N-A-U. That sounds like Runau to me. Runau, hmm. yeah. Yeah, Runau. Hey, now. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of those. Yeah. Anyway, so Scott asks, hmm. he, goes, he says, I'd be interested in hearing Daniel's thoughts on how the bulk of research at labs like CERN and Fermilab lab, sorry, is trying to confirm already existing theories, i.e. looking for the top quark and then the Higgs boson, as opposed to observing and exploring exotic physics, then building new theories based on those results. Is this the right approach in the long term? Should particle physics spend more time on exotic physics instead of verifying the standard model? And then in paren, he ends it, ideally, we would do both, but funding and staffing are the real, are very real limitations. Wow, what a great and insightful question. Um, was it Scott who really thought about, uh, you know, how particle physicists look for new stuff? Um, and he's hit on something which is fascinating, which is inside CERN, you have different communities of physicists. And we all use the collider. And the collider surrounds collisions, and the collisions are encapsulated with this big detector that essentially takes digital images of the collisions. But everybody at CERN can use that data and ask whatever questions they have. And some people say, well, I want to study this one particle, the top quark or the Higgs boson, to death. And other people, like me, say, I want to find something new. I want to go create a new particle. I want to sift through this data and find evidence for dark matter or something weird and unexpected. And so there are sort of different approaches there. And I think he's asking, you know, which is more fruitful or should we do both? Um, And the thing I think that I want Scott to understand is that really both of them are motivated by the same thing, which is finding something new. So in my case, I'm looking for a whole new kind of particle because that would be a smoking gun that there's something new. But the folks that are studying the top quark, they're not studying it because they just like hanging out with the top quark. They're studying it because they want to see it do something new. They want to say, oh, look, the top cork is supposed to do this thing, but we found that it does this other thing. That's a clue that there's a new particle. So in in both of us, in in the sense, the people studying the familiar particles and measuring them very precisely, and the people looking for brand new particles are all, in a sense, doing the same thing, looking for new particles. One is more direct than the other one. But historically, a lot of discoveries have come from saying, hey, these particles we thought we understood, they're doing this weird thing, or they don't have the Mm. properties we expect. Because all the particles are connected and they interact and they talk to each other, that's a clue that some new particles might be out there. So they're both very fruitful. Um, And who knows how we're going to discover something, right? Research is exploration. It's like landing on an alien planet and walking around. You never know whether you're going to be greeted by little green men or there's going to be nothing there or, you know, you have to turn over just the right rock. It's uh, Mm. if if we knew where where to look, that we would have already looked there. So. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's very frustrating sometimes you know it's been more than uh-huh. it's been years and years since we found something new but you never know whether tomorrow is going to be the day that blew open physics or whether we're not going to find nothing for the next 10 years it's wow. exciting and terrifying yeah yeah, yeah no that yeah, no that's great uh then jim manley wrote in 
and uh, he starts off, he says, I missed meeting Daniel during his lecture at Fermilab a few years back, but a friend of mine was kind enough to have Daniel sign a copy of his book for me. My feeble attempt at a funny question would be, does... (laughs) (laughs) Hypothetically, yes. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so just just forewarn you, he's got a funny question and then a serious question. All right. The, the funny question would be, is dark matter dark, quote unquote dark, because it's been chill filtered and had too much caramel coloring added? So that's a joke for the whiskey guys there. <laughs> the lock do of particle physics. Um, so in case you don't know what chill filtration is, it's it's the, if you've ever gone to a place and said, hey, give me a scotch on the rocks, or if you've ever bought a bottle of whiskey and popped it into your freezer or something, and you notice the liquid got cloudy, that's just the the the, the cold chilling the lipids inside mm, the whiskey, yeah. and, and it's just... There's right? those lipids oh, we talked go. about earlier. And, and, it's, and it's getting cloudy. And so most people would look at this and say, oh, that looks disgusting. I don't want to drink it. Meanwhile, it's perfectly fine. It's yeah. just a natural product. So the Scotch whiskey companies in in an effort to um, stave off more and more complaints, they do this process of chill filtration where they take the mature whiskey, they chill it to about negative seven degrees Celsius, and they pass it through a very, very fine filter that removes the majority of the lipids. And there goes your mouthfeel, there goes your texture. But then it also removes a good portion of the color, the natural color that was extracted from the wood. And so producers will add caramel coloring into it to darken it, hence dark matter. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. We do not know that. I'm learning all the dark secrets of uh, whiskey production today. Fascinating, (laughs) fascinating. All right. I just learned about it, but but now I have a strong opinion on the subject. Yeah, Exactly. There you go. You're you're our kind of people. You should create create a YouTube channel and come out with a 26-minute trailer on a movie about... uh, Anyway... um, his his more serious question, uh, the mm-hmm. Jim Manley asks, uh, does Daniel think dark matter could be the missing dimensions predicted by string theory? Mm. Mm. Wow, fascinating. Um, there's a lot there. You know, string theory is an idea that the universe is not made of particles, but instead of made of these tiny little strings, much, much smaller than the particles we see currently, and they vibrate, and they vibrate in different ways to give you the different particles. Mm-hmm. And the way the string theory math works, string theorists think that the universe has more than just three dimensions, each one being a direction you can move in. And it's hard to wrap your mind around like what it's like to have more than three dimensions. Like what's that extra way you could go in? And that's just because our minds are used to thinking in three dimensions. We're used to it. We, we yeah. think the whole universe is like that, but it doesn't have to be. And so there are there is this hypothesis that the universe could be in 11 or in 26 dimensions, um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and and that could yeah. answer a bunch of interesting questions. One of them being like, why is gravity so weak? If there are these other dimensions, it might be that gravity is leaking into those other dimensions. Um, but we think that dark matter hmm. is not connected to that. We think that dark matter is stuff, that it's matter, that it has gravity. It's changing the way galaxies shape, and galaxies rotate. It's affected the whole structure of the universe. Um, but we don't think that it's leaking into those other dimensions. We think it's just some kind of matter that we've never seen before. And you know, some, to clear up something, a lot of people think that dark matter is literally dark. 
like that if you saw a blob of it in space, it would block the light from behind it. But it, a better name for it would be like invisible matter because we can't see it at all. It doesn't interact with light. Mm. It's, uh, it's transparent instead of actually being dark. It's, so it's I, chill yeah. filtered, I guess. It must be, yeah. <laughs> if you get some E150A caramel coloring, just throw it into <laughs> <Exactly>. space. <laughs> I wish you E150A. Matter. I wish somebody would caramel color the dark matter so we could study it better. You know, it's it's so hard to find and to locate. There was one more uh, listener question, but I've always wondered this: if you cannot find dark matter and you can't see it. How, what is telling you that it is most definitely there? Is it because mm-hmm. there's an inexplicable empty space and, and therefore, you know, there cannot be an emptiness or is it something else that's informing you? Well, the only way we can interact with dark matter is through its gravity. That's why we think it's matter because it has gravity. And so we see its gravitational effects, but gravity yeah. is super duper weak. You know, like you can feel the force of gravity from the Earth, but the Earth is huge, right? It takes an entire planet to feel Mm. this force of gravity, whereas like a little fridge magnet can overpower the force of gravity, right? So gravity is really weak, which means to see dark matter from gravity means you need enormous blobs of it. So we can feel the gravitational effects of dark matter, but only like on the scale of galaxies. It's making Mm. our galaxy spin faster than otherwise it would have. Um, and this kind of stuff. But we can't localize it. We can't say, here's some dark matter because the gravitational force of it is is almost nothing. The way like you don't feel the gravitational mm-hmm. force um, with between you and stuff sitting around you because it's so weak, you can ignore it. It's that same mm-hmm. level of strength of local dark matter that we can't identify. So we can see that it's there, mm-hmm. um, but not literally see. We're going to feel the gravitational effect, but only sort of on cosmic size portions, not on even things like the size of the planet or the solar system. Do you think there's a chance that it could be intensified in a similar way that gravity is intensified the, the way a black hole intensifies gravity? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's responsible for the shape of our universe. Like dark matter, there's more dark matter than normal matter. And so the reason that we have galaxies is because we have dark matter. Our galaxy is sitting in a well shaped by dark matter. And without that dark matter, it would never have formed. It's pushed all of our stars and planets and stuff together. We do simulations of the universe and we take out the dark matter and we see what happens. 14 billion years in, gravity is not strong enough to have made stars and planets. So you need to wait even longer. So we can thank dark matter for the fact that we even exist. So yes, it's sort of intensified the gravitational effects of everything else because it's pulling very gently, but very steadily on everything. Okay. Okay. Hmm. That's very cool. That is. Thank you. And beautifully explained. (laughs) (laughs) All right. One last listener question. This one is from Kyle Patrick Wardlow. He says, oh, Joshua Hatton, I've got a question for Daniel. (laughs) What All whiskey right. what whiskey got you through grad school? And <laughs> if, if there was one. I think we found out it wasn't whiskey. No, it was banana peels. <laughs> I went to grad school at Berkeley, so I think that answers your question. Yeah, exactly. It was banana peels all the you way. You get banana peels, and you get banana peels, and you get banana peels. Yeah, and well, I, you know, and as actually, a grad student, you don't have a lot of money. And yeah. so, uh-huh. it was, you know, it was definitely the cheaper uh, sort of whiskeys that I was drinking in grad school. It was only recently that I started to appreciate more serious whiskeys or more interesting whiskeys. Uh, okay. Some friends of mine here um, introduced me to that. So I've recently become aware of this entire universe of wonderful flavors and experiences. 
Good use of universe. <laughs> Trying to connect, that. connect all the themes to... <laughs> pro yeah. move. That's a pro podcaster move. <laughs> uh, well, th- this has been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate all the time you've taken out to speak with us, to school us. My pleasure. To, really, it was yeah. a lot of fun. And thank you very much for the delicious whiskeys and for the education I got about how whiskey is made and how it shouldn't be made. <laughs> It has been an honor getting to know who you is. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Daniel Whiteson, thank you so very much for joining us. And, and, you know, it's interesting. When when I sent out the email saying, hey, we're a whiskey podcast that, that... you know, wants to talk science with you. I can imagine someone saying, why the hell am I going to get on a whiskey podcast? But like I said, he responded within five minutes. So, so D- Daniel, I really appreciate you, you spending the time with us and answering not just Absolutely. our questions, but also, you know, the questions of, of some of our listeners, right? This was, again, back to your point, Jason, where you said, Guys, you know, we know this is a whiskey podcast, but we're talking science here. We hope you'll you'll bear with us. Uh, meanwhile, we've we got a load of questions exactly. from uh, from our listeners, yeah. and our listeners knew of Doctor Whiteson, so so this was very good. Well, and I, and I think too we've we've had a good track record where you know an artist, a comedian, and an Emmy award winning actor. And so I think when we come to the point of having a particle physicist on, you know, I, I really do think our listeners are saying, and, and we've heard it from multiple people, some of those off-piste interviews are among my favourites that you've ever done. And mm. it is just a chance to stretch our legs and, and have a different kind of chat with somebody. So I, I love the fact that our listeners uh, and our nation members are willing to indulge us. And, and just like with our whiskey selections, with our interview selections, mm-hmm. if you guys have decided to interview them, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your judgment on yeah. that. Yep. And so far, we haven't steered them wrong, and, and I don't think we've steered them wrong with Daniel Whiteson either. No, no. Thankfully, we we have not. So if you yeah, guys... You said there were some yeah. things you wanted to add about... Yeah, yeah, Daniel. yeah. So if, if, if you guys enjoyed the conversation and enjoyed what Dr. Whiteson had to say... As a reminder, his podcast with Jorge is Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. But they also wrote a book together called We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. Now, I need to tell you, Haida actually got the audiobook from Audible for me. Lovely. In, right? In preparation of this. But she got it for me just as COVID hit and just as lockdown was starting. And I thought you were going to say she got it for you in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Albano, I got that one. Uh-huh. No Tango La Torea, I got that one. Uh-huh. Pentejo, yep, I got that one too. Penderin, what? You're back to the Matthew Reese episode. <laughs> but my point here is, much like Leo Weitzman, I got this audiobook and then ran out of places to drive to, places to fly to, to even <laughs> listen to it. And uh, yeah, so, so I haven't listened to it yet, but I know that it is narrated by Daniel and Jorge. And, and they're an absolute joy 
to listen to. I look forward to every single episode. And the other thing that I wanted to point out too, because I know a lot of our listeners are fans of science fiction, Mm -hmm. is Daniel is also a big fan of science fiction. And on their website, they have a list of, uh, of their favorite science fiction books and have started interviewing some science fiction writers to see if any, you know, if there can be any connections made between science fiction and science fact. And how does mm-hmm. science fact inform science fiction? And how does science fiction help people to work on science fact? And, and so it's, it's been a, they've had a few episodes where they interviewed writers and, uh, and talked about books and, and they're well worth your time. Awesome. Yeah. Well, if, if they ever want to get a couple of independent bottlers on their show, they know where we live. Yeah, we, we can talk the ins and outs of whiskey with them. <laughs> <laughs> Should we wake up the paper boy? You and I are of the same mind. I was just going to say, you and I have some news to get to, don't we? And meanwhile, though, yeah, there you go. We're on the flow. Yeah, let's, let's wake him up. We say we've got some news to get to. We're reiterating a, a couple of points that have been made up till now. We just want to remind listeners that we have our 30-year-old Imperial landing this week, clearing customs this week. Cannot wait. <laughs> it will not be sold immediately, but it will be coming. Be That's patient. because... All of the bottlings, all of the bottles are coming to my house. I don't think we're going to yeah, be right. selling any of these. <laughs> Joshua Hatton owns 150 bottles of the second Woodcut series. We have a 19-year-old Stones of Stenness release coming that spent all 19 years maturing in ex-bourbon. Stones of Stenness has been very popular with our collaboration with Hello from the Magic Tavern, mm-hmm. as we've been talking about Adol Rafai in this episode. Ooh, nice connection. There. And... Thank you, uh, gentleman podcaster. And we put a Stones of Stenness into retail. This is our first Stones of Stenness for online membership. This is our first Stones of Stenness for online membership that isn't a collaboration <laughs> with <laughs> podcast. Yes. Wow, you should do work for movie posters because I think you're. I think the way you you summarize that would be really good on a poster on a movie poster. This is Tom Cruise's first return since his last return with a Mission Impossible movie, except for the other five. Coming soon. In a world. In a world. With Tom Cruise. <laughs> Sympathical. Um, speaking of long-winded explanations, we will also have our first named Kalila for online membership. Mm. Uh, and this one will be coming from a Sherry Butt. So this will be our first Sherry Butt Kalila. And first Kalila named on an online label. And for those of you that don't understand what Jason means, like, what do you mean a named Kalila? Well, we have had bottlings in the past where we just said, this whiskey's from an undisclosed distillery. Now, we've done that perhaps mm. for Kalila, perhaps mm. for another Isla distillery that starts mm. with an L and ends with an N. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps for non-Isla distilleries. So mm-hmm. we weren't able to name them. But in this case, we were able to name this as a Kalila. Mm-hmm. 
And then finally, of the four that are about to land and, and go through customs, we have a blended Isla malt, which is a combination of two of Isla's distilleries. Mm -hmm. So if you think about pairs of owned distilleries on Isla, you either have Beaumont and Laphroaig, or you have, as we just mentioned, Kalila and Lagavulin. So it's that type of pairing. We are not able to say what they are. We don't actually know what they are. In nosing it, tasting it, and selecting it, we certainly have a hunch what they are. <laughs> but this is a great chance to hear from nation members. Yes. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and I think the blended Isla malt will get a good life on the private Facebook members-only page. Mm. I can see a bit of back and forth there on which members think which pairing of distilleries. Now, that's the type of thing I can't wait to read. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, same. Same. It'll, it'll be really interesting to see what people think. So while those are the four coming in, we also did start selling our blended malt. This one, an Edrington blended malt, mm -hmm. matured in a first fill sherry butt. Am I right in saying first fill sherry butt? Yep, you are 100% correct. It doesn't look Good. like it, so I appreciate why you would question it, but it is from First Phil Sherry. And just like we discussed previously with our Angostura, we even have some blended malt sitting on our website where if you were to open up singlecastnation.com right now on the front page and if you wanted to click buy bottles, you'll see mm. it in both places. We have a bottle that you can buy. And we do not have that every day of the year, do we, Joshua? Oh, gosh, I'm getting the vapors. I know. Getting the vapors. I know. I, I, actually, young Jim reached out to me and he said, the day you released the blended malt, I was very busy, absolutely slammed, didn't get online, didn't actually open up your website until the Friday afternoon. And lo... There was blended malt for sale. And he says, I was so incredibly happy that I hadn't missed out. And just as you and I had been talking about in our, our video that we recorded, we put it on YouTube and we shared it with all members on Facebook and over email, we told people there's a sherry butt coming. Plenty of bottles. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some, there's going to be plenty for everybody. If you've got a desire, we can meet the demand. Mm -hmm. And we did. And we did. Yeah, this this is great. We still have a fair, you know, it's not a huge amount, but we have a, a decent little amount of, of this whiskey yeah. remaining. And yeah. that makes me feel yeah. good. That makes me feel Plenty good. Plenty to share. Yeah. Anything you want to throw into the news? There's one thing that I want to throw in. Uh, because this, this podcast, this particular episode is, you know, us going off the beaten track a little bit. We will have uh, an episode coming up shortly where we're going to go off the beaten track again. Now, granted, we're not going back into the world of, of astrophysics or, or Emmy Award-winning acting or comedy or comic book writing, but we're going to go into the world of rum. We're interviewing cool. some key people in the rum world, and I'm very, very excited about that. I don't want to divulge who we're interviewing, but I want to let people know... You know, just thinking again back to our Angostura rum that, that we released, and so many people said, you know what, I don't drink rum, tasting, low, tasting notes look good, I've trusted these Single Cast Nation guys, holy crap, this rum is fantastic. You know, that got us thinking, if, 
if people are liking this rum, there's a good chance that they may want to hear from these rum producers. And so we've set up the interviews and, and we'll have some rum-centric content coming your way. Yeah, it'll be fantastic. And, and also, as we talk about going off the beaten path, we've spoken with the wonderful Matt Skinny Roberts mm-hmm. from Black Raven Brewing up in Seattle. And we had the opportunity to discuss barrel-matured beers and the world of beer writ large. And fermentation, because... Exactly, exactly. Fermentation is obviously (laughs) core to beer, but it is core to distilling as well. Exactly. So so this was a really fun conversation. That's exactly what I was going to go on to say before you said it for me. Oh, before I stepped on your toes, yeah. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Good, 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 good. So yeah, so I, I'm excited. We've got we've got a few interviews coming up that, uh, again, as we've said earlier in this episode, will allow us to stretch our legs. Yes, especially this time of COVID. You know, we're all exploring some different things right now. The world's a, a different place to live in. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. So should, should we should we get out of news? <laughs> Let's get out of news because we we got uh we got something in from a, a listener slash. Single Cast Nation member that I wanted to mm-hmm. that I wanted to talk about, and actually this question I think came to you initially. I do. I've I've got it right in front of me. Perfect. Why don't you go ahead and and, and read that and give a little name check to the gentleman who yeah. sent in the question. So this is from Mike Gore, who's who's a good lad, a Chicago area lad, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually a couple of weeks ago sent me a photo. He had secured a bottle of our Spanish rum 18-year-old, which was part of our very first retail release. And with the Angostura coming out, I think it it generated a bit of interest in our rum selections. Mm. And and he'd heard us mention the Spanish rum on one of our Zoom chats. And uh, and he sourced a bottle. So he's a a good lad and an active lad. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Michael. So Yeah. And so he says this. And so I'm not reading the full email just because it was actually a back and forth that we were having about other topics. Oh, gotcha. But he asked me this question and I said, can we use this on the on the pad cost? And he said, I would be honored to hear it covered in the pad cost. So, so here we are. I have a question, if you don't mind. When you taste whiskey analytically, do you do anything to calibrate your taste buds? I've heard of chefs who taste a controlled food like a cheese that they are very familiar with before starting to cook. The idea being, if it tastes different that day, they would know their taste buds were off. Mm-hmm. And and this is something you and I have gone back and forth on. Plenty times. On the subject of taste buds, I did say earlier in this episode... I was going to go back and pour the Ardbeg Dark Cove for the email segment. Okay. And I have, as a, as a gentleman podcaster of my honour and of my word, I have poured the Dark Cove. And I was showing you just as I was pouring this, I'm probably about a third of the way through the bottle. Yeah. And so this, is, this has been sitting on my shelf now, open for a couple of years. And, and in returning to it, should I pour some myself? I, th- I feel as if I should probably join you. Should uh, It feels like a foie, foie, foie moment when you're just like, should I just reach over to my <laughs> shelf here and pour some committee dark cove to join uh, you? You know, 
Yeah, it's okay. UX lyrical. And I'll, I'll come back. I'm going to get this. So as I put my nose into it, I definitely get this wonderful charred component going on. There really is a smoke and a complexity that goes beyond the spirit itself. But given that they boast about having some of the darkest sherry casks going on here, the sherry component is also unmistakable. And so you get this richness, this spiciness of sherry, along with this char, this darkness of, of flavor and aroma. And I, I think it's incredibly well done and bottled at, my eyesight's not what it once was. Let me turn uh, this into 55%. the light. 55%. 55% alcohol. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, a real, a real cracking dram there. Hmm. So, so as you're nosing it and, and tasting it, I will bat Mike Gore's question over to you because, because I know this is something you have thought about and this is something that, that you do act upon. And so do you want to oh, yeah. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, to, to be very honest, I have been doing this since before we started the company. I was doing this when we had blogs, right? Uh, because I wanted to make sure that if someone has taken the time to work up a sample and send me that sample, then I need to give it an honest review. And the only way I can give it an honest review is to ensure that my taste buds are where they need to be. If something's off, that could make it a great whiskey when it's not, or it can make it a shit whiskey when it's not. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so what I have used probably for the past 12 years or so is Glenmorangie 10 year old or the Glenmorangie original. And in the end, it doesn't matter what whiskey you use. What matters is your, your control sample to ensure that your taste buds are working properly has to be something that you are intimately familiar with. That if something was off with it, then you, you do want to question your taste buds before you question the whiskey because you said, I've had this bottle for a while. And you're drinking enough where maybe you're even tracking what oxidation is doing to the whiskey mm -hmm. too, right? Just like we've been discussing through this episode. Right, exactly. And so Glenmorangie 10-year-old is my control sample for when... Now, I don't do this all the time. I don't just, you know, mm -hmm. every, you know every time we're going to taste this taste some whiskey samples I don't just pour that because there are, there is also palate fatigue that I have to be cognizant of but if I'm feeling a bit off or I'm cooking breakfast and the toast doesn't smell like it should or you know whatever for whatever reason if I'm doubting my olfactory system in any way shape or form I say you know what I'm going to pour some of that Glenmo and and if it tastes off then I'll say yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't use my taste buds today. Well, we had a, an interesting scenario, actually, just a couple of weeks ago where you and I were sitting down for one of our selection panels and you had said, I, I had a dram earlier today and it it was just really peppery and, and really off. Yeah. And, and I, as you're suggesting in this answer, you didn't say... I think that's the result of the whiskey or the sample. I think my palate's off. 
Uh, and then we, we kind of started the, the tasting panel and you were getting pepper on everything and everything was just abrasive and yeah. harsh. Yeah. And we, we cancelled the selection panel mm-hmm. because you were saying like, no, my my palate just isn't here today. And, and I, I think it had come off a busy week where you were talking palate fatigue and everything does just be you know start to taste like whiskey is something we hear in some of our tastings yeah, but yeah. you know you are just getting this kind of aggressiveness on your taste buds we then gave you a break you know and I'm talking several days returned to the tasting panel and made our selections and, and the first I still remember you the first sample that we pulled in the new the rescheduled tasting palette uh-huh. the, the rescheduled tasting panel you had said oh Oh, this is a completely different day. Completely different. <laughs> oh, oh, my palate's back. Like uh-huh. you were really celebrating it. Um, yeah, it's off-putting, yeah, t- t- right? It's it's because I, go ahead, I can I, feel like yeah, that sometimes when when flying from city to city or driving from city to city, you know. And again, it you know hashtag life is tough. Night after night after night doing these tastings, or even currently when we're doing so many Zoom tastings and we're not mm. traveling anywhere, mm-hmm. we're just saying, okay, I've got a Zoom tasting this afternoon and a Zoom tasting this evening and another Zoom tasting tomorrow afternoon or a training session tomorrow afternoon. Mm. The palate really can be bombarded and you just reach a point where you say, I need to take a break. There's no other solution for this. I just have to take a break. And, and taking a break from something that a lot of people do recreationally seems kind of strange and kind of the height of privilege, but it is a reality of having a job or owning a company within a recreational industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. You, you and I... I think live, and I want to make sure that I'm saying this the right way so it doesn't sound as if I'm saying, oh, foie, foie, foie. Right. You know, it, it all leads to foie, foie, foie. No matter how careful you are, it's going to end up with a foie, foie, foie. But you and, you and I lead very different lives for most people because our, our very livelihoods depend on our nose and our palate, right? It's it's oh, 100%. W- without it we we wouldn't have a company we there's we just we wouldn't have what we have but the only way to maintain that is to smell and taste everything all the time as actively as you can which right? we've discussed in other episodes which absolutely exactly. absolutely and so when your palate is off just from tasting samples you're just just having you know just waking up to have that satisfying breakfast could be like oh gosh that's not how it normally tastes or oh something's wrong it's bitter now you know it's just you know again this is like hashtag you know not even first world problems like like (laughs) you know like planet zero problems where you know you're just you're completely affected by how something smells or tastes and it it affects your day it can mess with your mind because you're thinking oh shit what's gonna happen oh i hope this doesn't last too long we have deadlines i've got to do this i've got to do that exactly exactly 
Exactly. No, I, I thought that was a real spot on question when I first, mm. uh, when Mike first shared it with me. And I'm really glad we, we had a chance to explore it. He, he also made another comment, and this was actually just kind of a, a throwaway comment, not really for us on the podcast. But this was something you and I had mentioned again, we mentioned earlier in this podcast, talking about that little video that we recorded for YouTube, talking about how we were going to run the country going forward, <laughs> run the country, I wish, how you and I were going to run the company going forward mm. with so much demand and trying to get bottles to as many people as possible. Yeah. We talked about not wanting to go below a two bottle limit on our lottery only wild turkeys yeah. Those are one per That's person. Different. Yeah. You and I do not like that situation. No. But it, it is necessary to to share the wealth there. But in general, we never want to have to sell fewer than two bottles per person. With part of that being that's not how you and I buy in this whiskey world. You and I buy in twos. We get one, we open it, we say, oh. That's a freshly opened bottle. Let's give it two weeks. Okay, I see these differences over two weeks. Let's give this two months. And then we always know, oh, that was good. That was that was really tasty. I'm so glad I've got another one. Not, not to sell on uh, necessarily and, and certainly not to flip, but to have for a 50th birthday, a bar mitzvah. Someone yeah, exactly. else's birthday, yeah, yeah. a special event, being invited to somebody's house where you maybe want to impress them a little bit. Um, <laughs> wh- whatever reason, right? Whatever reason. Wah, wah, wah. Whatever reason. Uh-huh. And, and so Mike's comment here from that video was, your two-bottle strategy is a very wise one. I started following it on the milk and honey rum bottle, and I'm very glad I did. Smart. And, and I think it speaks, again, a little bit to our foie, foie, foie lives that we do buy in pairs. You know, that that's that's a very fortunate position to be it in. It really is, yeah. yeah. Right? But it's, but it's also one I know that if I buy two bottles today, and I promise my wife isn't listening, this sounds like I'm, <laughs> like I'm saying this because my wife is listening in. If I buy two today, that's one fewer bottles that I know I'm buying in the future. That's not true. I'm buying two in the future as well. (laughs) I I don't know why I'm saying this. Um, And so it's just good to have two. Let's be honest. It's just good to have two. It's just good practice. And damn it, I'm doing it. So I I love the fact that Mike saw the value in picking up a couple going through one, sharing one, knowing you've got another one, just waiting for whatever day it is, you choose to open that and share it. And you and I often talk separately. We're hedging our bets. We're we're betting that those two bottles, Mm -hmm. or here's better said, you and I are betting that that first bottle is going to be so good, it's worth having a backup before we taste it, we know it's going to sell out. We want to be equipped. But there are occasions when you are disappointed by that first one. It sure. doesn't live up to expectations. Yeah. You really have no interest in the second one, but it can still be a bottle that you make available to people who never got to experience it 
at all. Just because you might not want to have that second one stored, you might want the money from that first one. And I'm even just talking about whatever it costs you. You might want cost back in your pocket because you know you're going to go on and buy another pair another day. And and you were even saying off air, you had the perfect example. Well, th- this this was a slightly extreme case for me. So I was, and this was maybe two years ago or so, I was hot to trot for the Port Charlotte Heretic, which was one of the Brooklotti Fijil bottlings, right? And, and people talked about it as being the the black arts version of Port Charlotte. And I love mm. Brooklotti black arts, especially Yeah, absolutely. Right. Especially the first the very first edition, the second one, and maybe the fifth one are, are probably my favorites. And so I said, Oof, I've I've got to get that. Now, I wasn't on Isla that year. I wasn't able to get those bottles, but I did find some bottles on auction. And so I bought two bottles, right? Because this is what we do. We buy bottles and pairs. And um, and I opened I opened a bottle immediately as soon as it came in. I could not wait. I poured it. I nosed it. I tasted it. I said, this is not my cup of tea. So I put it to the side. Uh, I took a little bit out, actually, decanted that into a smaller bottle, let some oxygen maybe work into into the bottle, and, and I gave it a week, maybe a little more, to see if oxygen would help it. Uh, oxygen, at least for me, I think made it a bit worse. It wasn't that it was a bad whiskey. Yeah, exacerbated the problems. It exacerbated that you had the with it. Exactly. Was the whiskey in balance? It most definitely was. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that it was a flawed whiskey. It was just that the flavors weren't ticking the boxes for me, right? Fair enough. And so I said, you know what? Not only do I not want this first bottle, but I definitely don't want the second bottle. I'm never going to open it because it's not my cup of tea. And so what I did is I actually I sold that second bottle publicly, uh, for the for the <laughs> which I should never have done uh, behind closed doors behind for quadruple the price. Uh, no, that never happened. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> I I put it up for the amount I paid for it in in auction. But here's the thing: I would never ever have done that because I've I have a few bottles on my shelves because I've bought pairs where I have one open and one that's closed, and I'm never going to touch the open one again. I probably will never touch the closed one. But um, my cat, Colonel Angus, had to go to the vet, and I had a $4,000 vet bill or $3,500, whatever it was, a massive vet bill to pay. And I said... That'll cut into your drinking. What do I do? And I said, oh, you know what? I have that bottle to sell. And there was another bottle that I bought years ago, and I ended up selling that. And, you know, one of the nation members, rightfully so, said, mm-hmm. said, whoa, what's going on here? You guys are all about don't flip, don't <laughs> flip. And you're charging an exorbitant amount of money for this bottle, to which I had the perfect response. Well, no, I charged what I paid for it. I'm not making a penny on this. My cat was dying. I had to pay for that. You know, I... We are against flipping. We remain against flipping. We do. We do. Um, but that was a situation where do I keep a bottle on my shelf that I will likely never drink? Yeah. 
or do I pay my vet bill because my vet just saved my cat's life? I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said not your cup of tea and it's worth sharing with somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, look at look at that Ben Nevis 13 that you gave to me around about this time last year. First Phil heavily sherried Ben Nevis 13-year-old from an independent bottler was not your cup of tea. And while I think it's a absolute funky monkey... Because it was also heated. I, I enjoy dipping into it. I I get a bit of fun out of it being a, a, a peated, funky monkey, different kind of thing. I, and I think with your, your love of Ben Nevis, you're looking for something else from that distillery. I'm, I'm always comfortable sitting down with a funky monkey and having a I, bit of fun. Well, I, I mean, we, we opened this conversation with me drinking the funkiest monkey I have. You're right. <laughs> on my shelf. So you you are correct in that I do have certain expectations from Ben Nevis. When I got this bottle, I, I didn't know what to expect because it was peated Ben Nevis, but I was just so incredibly disappointed with it. And I impulsively said, you said, oh, you know, I'm kind of liking this. It's weird and it's funky. And I said, you know what? You're my buddy. Take it. And I did that for two reasons. A, you were enjoying it. Here, have the bottle. I will probably never touch it. And B, B, you know, maybe next time I'm in Virginia and we're we're having a night of whiskeys, you break that out and you say, let's have something weird. And and in in that particular setting, it would be fun. In the yeah. setting oh, yeah. where we drank it originally, we drank it because we were looking for a good whiskey. We didn't find a good whiskey. We found a funky whiskey. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. It has a place. There's there's no doubt. Yeah. But, well, I, and again, as you said to open up the episode, look at Thursday with your, your no good god awful day. That dead muskrat had a place. It had, it had a, a time place. and a place, yep. a context. Yep. 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 So, so let, let's let's finish where we started. Let's uh, as we've as we've mentioned many times, Saturday afternoon, we're going to return to our families. Yes. But this this has been a delight. I have thoroughly enjoyed spending time with my good friend, my business partner. Wait, all right, what are we introducing here? What's happening? Yeah, well, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a blast, my friend. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed hanging with you on a Saturday afternoon. Same. And uh, let's not worry about returning to emails. Let's, let's go return to our families. I like that idea a lot. Chin, chin, chiroo. Chin, chin. Cheers to you, brother. And cheers, dear listeners. Godspeed wherever you find cheers. yourselves. And thank you again. Dr. Daniel Whiteson. 100%. And Mike G for the email. (laughs) Cheers, Mike. Cheers.